Well, um, if you have a Bible and you'd like to <coughs> follow the reading, um, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, reading from verse 1. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful and who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, I know that before Christmas uh, I, I was looking at the life of Moses and I may still go back to the life of Moses. Uh, this is reading week at, at our college, so the students are all away and I was looking forward to a quiet week, um, And uh, but it's been a crazy week. So uh, I've only been at home one day this week and I um, was last Sunday I was speaking at a Bible week in Lisbon Baptist in Northern Ireland, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I got home sort of on Thursday 
and uh, I had to speak at a friend's funeral yesterday in Northern Ireland so I was preparing on Friday for that and uh, I feel like my uh, week has just disappeared so I'm going to just preach on this passage it's one of the passages I spoke on last weekend and it's fresh in my head and heart and I want to share it with you so I may yet return to the life of Moses if you ever invite me back after this sermon well just a prayer Lord we pray that you'll help us um, today as we ponder this great section of scripture and uh, as we think about the fact that what unites us is is not uh, a favourite preacher but instead the Lord Jesus and our experience of him and the fact that we've benefited each of us from his work, his atoning work on the cross so help us we pray as we look at this portion of scripture together we ask this in Jesus name Amen well a number of years had passed since uh, Paul had founded the church in Corinth he along with uh, Priscilla and Aquila had founded the church AD 50 to 52 spent 18 months there working uh, tent making preaching the gospel it seems in the latter part of his time there he was preaching full time um that time in Corinth took place at the end of his second missionary journey so it was the final 18 months of his second missionary journey and then he made his way back of course uh, to Jerusalem well to Antioch his sending church and then to Jerusalem uh, to give a report of all that had been accomplished during that second missionary trip and uh, on his way back from Corinth then to uh, Antioch he stopped off at Ephesus it was a very short fleeting visit didn't spend any time there and he dropped off Priscilla and Aquila who had been working with him in Corinth then he went on to uh, Antioch then Jerusalem then he came back and then of course he made uh, it seems he launched his third missionary journey and he made a beeline straight for Ephesus where he had dropped Priscilla and Aquila off so it was from Ephesus that uh, he kept in communication with the church in Corinth and it was in Ephesus that he actually wrote to the Corinthians uh, this letter that we call 1 Corinthians but there was a letter before this that he makes reference to so 1 Corinthians is probably actually 2 Corinthians Um, but we call it 1 Corinthians because it's the only it's the first letter that we have uh, and the earliest letter that we have uh, that, that remains now the church in Corinth then uh, hasn't been in existence for a long time he spent 18 months he went to Jerusalem he came back he's been working in Ephesus and he's been writing these letters and communicating backwards and forwards with them not, not a long time um, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians towards the end of his stay in Ephesus which was about three years so my guesstimate is that the church in Corinth may have been in, in existence for somewhere in the region of four or five years by the time that this letter was written. Now that's not a long time is it? Four or five years but it seems that it was long enough for this church to divide itself into a number of different factions and uh, Chloe's house Uh, Chloe and her friends, her household (coughs) 
but Chloe in particular had been uh, keeping in touch with Paul and telling him about uh, developments in the church and keeping him informed of the fact that the church had become divided into different factions and these factions seemed to despise each other, had little time for each other and there was a rift emerging between groups within the church and of course uh, I like Chloe, she's not up to her ears in the middle of these divisions she is writing a letter to the apostle, the founder of the church sending out as it were an SOS saying come and help us do something to help this crisis in the church she wants to see it resolved Uh, she can't bear the thought of this church that she belongs to becoming uh, divided and an unimaginable um, mess so this letter then is Paul's response it seems that they had also written to him and from chapter 7 onwards he's answering a bunch of questions that they asked him but this letter is really Paul's response to what he has heard about the uh, developments in the church at Corinth which was a divided mess to say the least least but I find it really interesting that's why I want to look at verses 10 through 17 but I find it really interesting uh, just to notice where he began the letter in chapters in chapter 1 verses 4 to 9 he, he tells the church that he's thankful for them even though they're fighting tooth and nail with each other even though there's a man in the church who's refusing to stop sleeping with his mother with his father's wife not probably his mother but his father's wife engaging in immorality even though the the rich were dragging the poor through court in this church even though there were gifted individuals who were flaunting their gifts at the front wanting everyone to see them and draw attention to them Paul writes to this church and he begins the letter and he says I'm I'm thankful for you folk it's quite remarkable and he's thankful because he knows that they've received the grace of God that is in Christ he he knows that God has saved them and uh, extended his mercy towards them he's thankful for them because he says that they are enriched God has gifted them as a church and they're lacking in no spiritual gift they've got all the gifts required uh, to function as a church he reminds this church that uh, not only has God blessed them in the past not only is God blessing them now but he, he believes that God will keep them firm to the end that God will confirm them until the end of the journey It's a very positive opening paragraph uh, in a letter to a church that was a mess. And uh, it reminds me, it may not remind you, but it reminds me that some of us can only ever see the problems. And we can never see beyond the problems and the difficulties. But Paul was able to see what God had done for these people. What God was doing for these people. And what God would yet do for them. Despite all of their difficulties and all of the struggles that existed in this church. Part of the reason I think he, he opens this letter the way he does, does by reminding them of who they are in Christ and the fact that Christ is the one that has gifted them is because I think he wants them to see that they are what they are not because of any person within the church but because of Christ I think he opens this letter this way by reminding them of what God has done for them in Christ because he wants them to see that 
It's not Apollos and it's not Peter and it's not Paul but it's Christ that has redeemed them and it's Christ to whom they owe absolutely everything and he wants them to be enraptured just a little bit more with Jesus. He wants them to be more enraptured with Jesus than they are with any of these individuals. Wouldn't it be great if the Christian church was a little less caught up with celebrity preachers and personalities and a little bit more enraptured with Jesus? Man went to hear Spurgeon and Parker preach in London, uh, two gentlemen from the States, and afterwards they were comparing notes uh, about uh, these two preachers, great preachers in England. The man who had been to hear Parker said, what a great preacher. But the man who had been to hear Spurgeon said, what a great saviour. And, and that's all, that, that ought to be where the focus is. These folks, it seems, had taken their eyes off Jesus and were focused a little bit too much on men. They claimed to love Jesus. They claimed that Jesus was their ultimate. But they seemed consumed a lot with men and with preachers. A bit like some of our children when they were young. My wife used to, on a Saturday, take them to their uh, grandmother's house because I was usually finishing off preparing for Sundays. And... uh, she would take them off and spend the day at grandma's house and come home. And their favorite meal apparently was chicken nuggets and chips and she would cook that for them. But they wouldn't eat it often on a Saturday evening. And you know why? Because they were too full of smarties and junk that they had got at grandma's house. This was their favorite meal they said but they wouldn't eat it. And that's a bit like what's going on in Corinth. They said Jesus was their favorite, their ultimate But they were so full of individuals that they had taken their minds off Jesus. Well, three things quickly, if I can. Um, I want you to think about the appeal that he makes, the problems that he addresses, and three questions that he asks. And uh, the first point will be the longest, so don't panic if you think this guy's never going to get through this. The appeal that he makes, the problems that he discusses, and the questions that he asks. So first of all, the appeal that he makes. Well, it's in verse 10. The first thing is, unity is requested. And then, how is unity expressed? Those are the two things I want to pick up on in regard to the the appeal that he makes to the Corinthians. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. He says in verse 10, in the name of Christ. So this is not just some, you know, Johnny down the street pleading. This is in the name of Christ, he says. I I plead with you that all of you will agree with one another and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly joined together in mind and thought. So he pleads. This isn't this word plead could be used in the context of begging. Really begging, not sitting, you know, with a sign saying uh, money needed for sort of alcohol research. This is real begging. These are, this is desperate. These people, nothing to, nothing to eat. And that's the context in which this word could be used, begging. I plead with you, he says. 
He isn't just saying, come on now. Uh, your divisions are not very good. Uh, I, I would like you at some point to think about getting a- along a little bit better. That's not the tone here. The tone here is uh, of a begging nature. He wants them, he's begging them to put their divisive spirits aside. Paul has a high view of the church and he found news that it was disintegrating into factions, disturbing. And these these divisions were anything but helpful to the testimony of the church in a pagan city like Corinth because there were already enough divisions within society without divisions existing within the church. So, let me tell you just very briefly about Corinth. So, Corinth was a Roman colony. It was filled with retired Roman soldiers. That, these soldiers that fought in the legions, they couldn't came retired. They couldn't all stay in Rome. So, how are you going to keep all these restless men who are used to fighting in the legions? How are you going to keep them in Rome? Well, you can't. So, you, so you establish Roman colonies and you ship them out there and get rid of them uh, so that they won't cause any annoyance. And, and Corinth is full of Roman generals who fought in, this, in, in the legions in, in places like Cumbria trying to keep the picks out of uh, the empire. Anyway um, these generals would walk the streets of Corinth wanting everyone to know how important they were. The battles that they had fought in. I mean the battles that he fought in they were nothing compared to the battles that I fought in and they of course had their supporters and soldiers that fought with them and there were groups within society not only that, but there, there was, uh, of course, the issue of philosophy. So Corinth is just 50 miles away from Athens. It's not long, that's not far. Athens is the center of philosophy and philosophical schools and philosophical thought and philosophers with their disciples. Well, 50 miles down the road, that kind of thing had infiltrated Corinth. So you've got these teachers who, with all of their wise words and their followers. And there's this group here, and there's this group there, and then there's another group, and he's got another set of ideas over there. That's how society functioned. And then you've got the political structures. You've got these senators that sat on the Senate in Corinth. And uh, they were like patrons and they had their clients and they would let people build little shacks on their land as long as they eulogized them in public, as long as they supported them in, in the political arena. And Paul realizes that people have become, have, have become Christians and they've walked into the church with this divisive mentality thinking, well we did it out there, we'll do it in here. And young Christians were becoming Christians and they didn't know which group to belong to. Should I belong to the Paul group? Maybe I should belong to the Apollos group. Well, maybe I should go over there to the Peter group and they had no idea which group to belong to. Paul pleads with them. Let's put this divisive spirit aside, he says. And he pleads with them in verse 10 as a brother. He's pleading with them as a fellow member of the family of faith. And he pleads with them in the name of Christ. He's an apostle of Christ. He's not just writing off his own bat. He carries the authority of Christ. And he's pleading with them in the name of Christ. And of course Christ is the one who prayed that his people would be one even as he and his father are one. That's a high standard, isn't it? I pray that that they will be one even as you and I are one. 
he prayed in John 17. And Paul is saying, isn't the name of Christ, doesn't it mean anything to you? Doesn't the prayer that the Savior prayed for unity carry any weight? I'm pleading with you, not in my own name, but in the name of Jesus. So he's pleading for unity in the name of Christ. That's the thing that should unite us. It's Christ that unites us. It's interesting, a number of uh, World Cups ago, I'm old enough to remember this, some of you might not be old enough to remember, but uh, the French team were one of the favourites at one of the World Cups, and they got kicked out and sent home uh, because the divisions in the team were such that some of the players wouldn't pass the ball to other players on the field. And so the so-called favourites went home, went out of the competition early. They couldn't even unite under the, under the flag of their country. They couldn't even unite for the sake of their, the French country. And Paul is saying, well, can't we unite for the sake of Christ? Don't we all fall in line under his banner? I'm pleading with you in the name of Christ to put your divisions apart. We're actually following the same Lord and we're on the same team. Well, what about, that's what he pleads for, unity requested, how is unity expressed? Well, he says in verse 10, this is how I want to see it expressed, this unity. Verse 10b, that you may be perfectly joined together and that you might have the same mind and that you might have the same judgment. Perfectly joined together, same mind and the same judgment. Now, the word perfect could be translated mature. I I think Paul is saying, I want you to grow up a little bit. Instead of wallowing in immaturity like infants and children squabbling, I want you to show a little bit of Christian maturity. I want you to behave like mature adults who are well developed in the things of faith. And he wants them to express their unity, first of all, by having the same words. Or that you agree with one another, one another in what you say, I think is how it's put in the NIV. But the Corinthians didn't speak the same words. They were flaunting their divisions before a watching world. As the world listened to these Christians, all they could hear was divisive talk. I'm in his camp. Well, I'm in his camp. Well, I'm over here in his camp. There was no sense of oneness. There was no singleness of talk. And Paul wants them to have a single voice and a single message for a world that already knows far too much about quarrels and divisions. Corinth as a city is coming down with divisions and disparaging discussions about other groups and other people. Corinth is a city that is built on this kind of division, which is centered largely on personalities. Whether it's philosophers or retired Roman generals or politicians. But no such division should emanate from the Christian church. There ought to be no striving for status and power. There ought to be no personality cults. There ought to be no rival teachers and opposing supporters. There ought not to be a culture of the haves and the have-nots. Those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. There needs to be a united voice from the church. Because we are a body. We are the body of Christ. Not Christ doesn't have ten different bodies. He has one body. 
And each of us have our function and role to play in that body. He also says to them that he wants them to have the same judgment, not just the same uh, talk, but he wants them to have the same judgment. Now, that's an interesting statement. I don't think that that is calling for absolute uniformity. I don't think that God expects us to be clones of each other. In my previous life I was a Baptist pastor. One of the things that uh, Baptists believe in is freedom of conscience. And we ought to grant others the same freedom that the Bereans were granted by Paul when he said, You search the scriptures for yourselves and see if these things be so. Don't just take it because I said it. Search the scriptures for yourselves and see if these things be so. I don't think that this is calling for absolute uniformity. I don't, I don't think that, that God expects us to be clones, that we all dress the same. And we all believe exactly the same about every minutia of, of theology. I think this is not calling for absolute uniformity, but I think it is calling for unity. Unity in Christ. We are brothers and sisters serving the same Lord and seeking the advance of the same gospel. We are not rivals. Worldly philosophers and their students may battle it out tooth and nail, but that's not how it works in the church. We are workers together with God. United we stand and divided we fall. Jesus said, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. The trouble in Corinth is that they had no love for one another. And whatever our differences might be, and I'm not so naive as to think that we have no differences, but whatever our differences might be, whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, I am your brother. And you are my brother, or you are my sister. And we belong to the same spiritual family and we serve the same Lord. And we are, it should at least be our desire to see the advance of the same kingdom. So Paul says, won't you grow up a little bit? Like won't you just show a little bit of maturity? He says to these folks, and won't you put your divisive spirits behind? Well, what about the problems? Then uh, we're coming to point two now, the divisions, uh, the problems that he discusses. So, the divisions in this church centered around personalities. And that he just, you know, he, he opens the letter and he just pulls back the camouflage and he just goes straight for it. No fooling around here. He says, some of you say that I am of Paul. Some of you are saying that I am of Apollos. And some of you are saying I am of Peter. And then there's a really spiritual crowd. And you say, well, I'm of Christ. Well, these groups, Paul, first of all, Paul had founded the church. He had led many of them out of the darkness of paganism into the light of the gospel. It was his preaching that God used to bring them to spiritual life. There's nothing wrong with having a special place in your heart for the person that God used to bring you to faith. Absolutely nothing. And uh, I, I, I still look back with fondness to the, the person that was instrumental in, in my conversion. Of course I do. But, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is, I am of Paul. It's not, you know, I like to log into the Gospel Coalition and listen to Paul. That's fine. 
listening to Paul, listening to Alistair Begg, listening to Tim Keller, listening to whoever you listen to. That's fine. But when it gets to a level where you say, I am off Paul. You know, I'm, I'm off him. I belong to him. I'm in his camp. I don't listen to anybody else. No one else counts compared to Paul. Then there's a problem. It's a bit like, I guess, in pastoral life, uh, a new pastor might come and he could have golden shoes and he could have a halo above his head, but no matter what he did, he would never be the old pastor in the minds of some. It's a bit like that. Then there's mention of Apollos and Apollos group. Acts 18.24 tells us that Apollos was from Alexandria, which at this point in history was the second largest city in the world. It was also a respected university city and competed with places like, um, like Tarsus from which Paul came. That was also a university university town. But in the minds of some, and especially in the minds of Jews, Alexandria was the place to study. It was the Oxford or the Harvard or uh, of the first century world. Well, Apollos had come from Alexandria. We were also told in Acts 18:24 that he was very articulate, finely tuned mind. He knew the Old Testament scriptures exceptionally, uh, exceptional ability in in uh, understanding of the Old Testament and after a conversation with a couple called Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus he became a very powerful and accurate preacher of the gospel Um, and people in Corinth loved him they idolized him this eloquent, educated John Lennox of the first century I'm in his camp I am of Apollos This is not, I like to listen to Apollos once in a while. I find his preaching engaging. This is, I am of Apollos. When a group within the church choose to take their teaching from one chosen guru and use terms like, I am of him, then division is knocking at the door. Division is knocking at the door. Then there's the Peter faction. Um... It's generally believed that Peter was the champion of the Jewish contingent of the church. And if you read the book of Galatians, you'll see that he struggled with how much of his Judaic background should he leave aside. And there's an incident in in Galatians where Paul has to rebuke him because there's a period in his life where he stops eating with Gentile Christians. They're eating unclean food, eating from dishes that unclean food had once been in. He doesn't quite view them as equals. So you need Christ plus dietary regulations. And he stopped eating with them. And and he struggled with how much of his Jewish background does he lay uh, aside. And uh, many believe that uh, Peter was the the one that championed the Jewish traditional uh, dimension of the church. He may have still observed Jewish Sabbaths. This group, at least, may have uh, still been hung up on kosher foods and so on. And the Gentiles were just a little bit too liberal. We like Peter. We're off Peter, in fact. If Peter was here, you folks wouldn't get away with that. You'd have to toe into line. If Peter was here, he'd make sure you did it the right way. Then there was a Christ group and we think, well, what's wrong with them? Nothing is wrong with them other than you get the sense that they believed that they didn't need anybody or help from anyone. They were just super spiritual Christians. They had a direct line uh, to heaven from which they got the counsel of Jesus directly and they didn't need the help of preachers and teachers and leaders within the church. They just knew it all. This is the Jesus and me group. 
and little time for any kind of structures within the church streets ahead of everyone else so there you have it you've got the sentimentalists I'm of Paul he's the one that led me to faith there'll never be another Paul and, and then the, you had the intellectuals Apollos, I like to listen to Apollos he's just brilliant and then you've got the traditionalists Peter, I like Peter he serves up Christianity the way I like it. And then you've got the super spiritual crew who are beyond and above any kind of leadership. Now what I want you to notice here is that these divisions are not theologically based. They are not based on the atoning, the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ. They are not based on the divinity of Christ. They are based on personal tastes. I'm more of an intellectual, so I like Apollos. Well, I'm more of a traditionalist, so I like Peter. And it was largely down to subjective tastes. Isn't this a danger that we face in the Christian church? As I trundle up and down the country, I see division. Uh, I see people uh, in all kinds of uh, environments who who uh, are divided on the pettiest of things. You know, one of the things that is usually one of the things. Well, maybe less so now, but it used to be um, worship songs. You go to one church, they'll only sing hymns that were written, written before the 18th century. You go to another church, they'll only sing more contemporary worship songs. Nothing that was written before the 1900s could ever be sung. You go to another church and they'll only sing psalms. And they'll never sing a hymn. It's a bit like a story I heard from Liam Golliher many years ago. Uh, this couple had become a Christian. Uh, had a husband and wife had become a Christian. And uh, he was a businessman. He was traveling. And he went uh, on business and he was away one weekend. And he came back to his wife and he says, So I went to church when I was away. And in the church I was at we sang choruses. Oh, she says, what's a chorus? Well, he says, a chorus is... Where you sing, Mary, the cows have broken into the meadow. Mary, the cows have broken into the meadow. Mary, the cows have broken into the meadow. And you repeat that about 25 times. That's a chorus. So the next week he went to another church in another part of the country. And he came back and he says, oh Mary, um, in in this church we were singing hymns. Oh, she says, what's a hymn? Just Christians now. have never been to church before. What's a hymn, she says? Well, she says, he says to her, this is how a hymn would go. Remember the chorus I told you last week, the cows have broken into the meadow? Well, here, here is a, a hymn. Oh, Mary, my dearest Mary, these bovine creatures have left their normal place of pasture. They've crossed the boundary fence of the meadow and are now extracting the grass grown on that rich, dark soil in in the small flat area alongside the river. That's a hymn. Somewhere along the line we need to take a look at ourselves and uh, do just what Paul asks us to do and that's grow up a little bit, don't you think, in the Christian church? Because we divide ourselves over the pettiest of issues. The other thing that uh, seems to have been uh, a factor is their baptisms. Because there's a whole section. I didn't baptize anyone. No one can claim to have been baptized in my name, he says. And, and it seems that there were individuals who were saying in this church, well, my baptism was really more important than yours. I mean, were you at my baptism service? 
Didn't you hear Apollos preach? Did you see the way he pronounced those words? I baptize you in the name of the Father. My baptism is much more important than yours. You were just baptized by Paul or Peter. And there's this whole, um, this whole discussion about... Um, well, um, I was baptized by one person and, and my, my baptism is better than yours. And, and you have this a bit today, don't you? Well, I was baptized by whoever it was, wherever it was. And then you get someone who pulls out the great trump card. Well, I was baptized in the River Jordan. So my baptism's better than yours. If we think that we haven't got these kind of labels in the 21st century, we're fooling ourselves. I see this in the students that I work with on a regular basis. The modern spin on it is, well, I'm of the trust group. And then there's another crowd that says, well, I'm more Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. And then there's another crowd who say, well, you know, I'm a little bit more in the Paul Washer group. I hear students talk about it well. They come into college and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of John Calvin. And then there's another crowd. They're followers of John Wesley. And then you've got John Owen. And then you've got John Piper. And then you've got John MacArthur. And on and on the Johns go on. Somewhere along the line you say to yourself, well, where does Jesus fit into this? Luther, after the Reformation, discovered that people were being called Lutherans. And this is what he said. He said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, he said. Nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ after my evil name? Where do we get off dividing the church of Jesus Christ into factions to be played off each other? Well, here's the last thing. And it's with this I'm finished. He asks them three questions. Powerful questions. First question he asks is, is Christ divided? Has Christ been divided into little pieces so that your group has a piece of Christ and my group has a piece of Christ? Christ is not divided. Christ in all of his fullness lives in every believer. All of his fullness lives in every believer. The Christ who lives in you is not at war with the Christ who lives in me. So if we're at war, it's not Jesus. It's something else, it's somebody else, but it's not Jesus. Christ does not have several armies, army A and army B and army C. He has one body, he has one people, and we must stand together. And it's a great question. Was Christ divided? Do you have a little piece of Christ? And do, does my group over here have a little piece of Christ? No. The same Christ indwells you as indwells me. The second question, I think this is the question. Was Paul crucified for you? Who went bearing shame and scoffing rude and in your place condemned stood? Who walked up to the judgment bar of God and said, I'll take their place. I'll bear their sin. I'll exhaust your wrath on their behalf so that there is nothing for them to pay. I'll drink the cup of judgment so that there's not even a dreg, not even a a, a tiny little drop for them to drink and they can go free. Who did that for you, he says? Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it Peter? No, it was Jesus, he says. 
Jesus is the one that we're indebted to. He is the one that we owe our life and our eternity to. Not Paul and not Apollos. So let's get our eyes off people and focus them firmly on the author and perfecter of our faith. And finally, here's the final question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, baptism became known as a sacrament. uh, And it's taken from the word sacramentum. Because when a Roman soldier joined the Roman army, he had to take an oath of allegiance, known as a sacramentum, an oath of allegiance to the Roman emperor and to the empire. And so baptism became viewed as that. When a person is baptized, they're giving testimony to the fact that they are committed to Christ, that they're new creatures in Christ, that, that they are... Going to follow Christ. It's a nailing of the colors to the mast. And Paul says, well, you you know, when you were baptized, in whose name were you baptized? And, And to whom did you promise allegiance? To whom did you commit the rest of your life publicly? Was it to Paul? No, it was to Jesus. The problem in Corinth is that they had forgotten where their true allegiance lay. And they needed to get their eyes fixed again on Jesus. In answering all of these questions, Paul wants the Corinthians to see that they don't belong to him or any of the other high-profile preachers in Corinth. They belong to the Savior. And they should stand shoulder to shoulder with other Christians for him. When my children were younger, they used to fight a little bit. They don't fight so much now. It's a funny thing when they get older, they seem to leave that phase behind. Now just keeping them on the straight and the narrow seems to be the challenge. But uh, they used to fight a little bit. And um, I used to tell them, we're a family. We are a family. You've got the same parents. Why can't you care for each other? Why can't you look out for each other? Why don't you stand shoulder to shoulder with each other? Don't you realize that we're a family? And so it is in the Christian church. We're not competing against each other as components in a rugby match. We are of the household of faith. We don't get to choose who God admits into his family. We don't get the right to play one member off another. We take our place as family, as equals, on the basis of our spiritual faith. So there it is. <coughs> there was uh, three things that we looked at. We looked at, first of all, um, the appeal he makes. When you grow up and put your divisions aside and just be a little bit more united. The appeal he makes. And then there was the problems he discusses. No fooling around here. He just goes straight for it. Says all this talk about Apollos and Peter. It's absolute nonsense. And then the questions that he asks. He says, well, who, who, who went bearing shame and scoffing rude for you? Was it any of these individuals? Would they even do it if you asked them to? No, they wouldn't. The only person who loved you and really cared for you to this level and to this extent was Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom all of us owe our absolute allegiance. Now, I heard a preacher preach on this a while ago and it it, it ticked me off a little bit. He is not saying it's wrong to listen to Alistair Begg. But when we get to a stage when we start saying, I am of Alistair Begg, then there's a serious problem. 
Because we are not of Alistair Begg, we're of Jesus. He's the one that we are committed to. Thank you for your kind attention uh, again this morning.